Well, good morning. And uh, I was talking to somebody earlier, and they said that it's, they think it's been a year since I've been here. I don't know if it's been that long, but maybe it has. So, uh, so anyway, uh, grateful to, to be here and to open up the Word of God uh, together uh, with you. And if you would, uh, take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10. And uh, I do bring you greetings from Baltimore uh, Bible Church. Uh, I'm just grateful to have a sister, uh, like-minded church uh, down here. And uh, always uh, grateful to uh, fellowship with you. So uh, Luke chapter 10. And uh, we're going to take a look at one of the best known and most beloved stories in all of scripture. Uh, the story is simple. It's memorable. It's convicting. And the truth that it teaches is profound. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, many of you know the story. Uh, numerous hospitals have been named after the story of the Good Samaritan. Missions organizations take their name from the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, when society wants to speak about somebody who's uh, accomplished something extraordinary on behalf of somebody else, uh, they call that person a good Samaritan. And uh, whether people read their Bibles or not, uh, they're somewhat familiar with uh, uh, the story. And uh, we all know the story, right? You know, there's some poor guy, he falls among thieves, he's left for dead, and uh, the people that you would most expect to help him don't, and the one person that you would least expect uh, to help him does help him. And uh, that's the irony uh, that's in Jesus's uh, story. And one of the uh, common techniques that Jesus used in telling stories was the element of surprise. You know, things that you don't expect to happen, happen in the parables that Jesus tells and that sends the audience home reeling. Like, can you believe it? You know, a Samaritan out of all people helped this guy on the side of the, the road. So it made a big impression on the people who would have listened to it. And there's so many lessons uh, that we can take away from the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, we're convicted by the compassion uh, that the Samaritan had, our failure to love in that kind of way. Uh, we see that sin is not just what you do, uh, but sin is also what you don't do, what you fail to do. Uh, we see the hypocrisy of false religion as those that should have been helping aren't helping. And uh, we're also challenged to imitate uh, the love uh, that we see demonstrated in this illustration. And the list could go on. Uh, but if that's all we get from the, the story, we've really missed the point. If, if all we learn from the story of the Good Samaritan is, you know, like a good neighbor, I should be there. If, if that's all you get from the story, you've, you've missed the point of the story. Because this story uh, is not meant just to teach us how to be a Good Samaritan. Uh, there, there's something within the, the context that allows us to see what the greater point of this story was. So if you would take a look with me at Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, I'll start at verse 25. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he, left, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, 
whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Uh, Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, just pray that you would help us, Lord, as we look at this text, uh, that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And uh, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What's often overlooked in the story of the Good Samaritan is the context in which the story arose in the first place. If you look back at verse 25, it opens up by saying, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that's the concern that Jesus is addressing in the parable. And it's the the most important concern that's raised in all of Scripture. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And there's no more important question that could be asked by anyone. And that's because death is a common and universal reality for all of mankind. The pattern of uh, Genesis chapter 5 is still true uh, for us today. We live, we have children, and we die. We live, we have children, and we die. Moses, the author of Psalm 90, uses the same metaphor. He says, you turn man back into dust and and say, return, O children of men. In Genesis 3.19, you are dust and to dust you shall return. We're not just compared to dust. Uh, David and Isaiah compare mankind to grass. Uh, Psalm 103.15, David says, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. There's going to come a time when we all die, uh, when we all pass off the, the scene, just cut down, mowed down like grass. In Isaiah 40 and verse 6, it says, Call out, then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. James compares mankind to a vapor. James 4 and 14, you, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. You know, like the, the steam rising from a pot, you know, from a cup of coffee. You know, the steam rises, it dissipates, and it's gone. And he says, that's your life. Your your life is like the dust of the earth. Your your life is like grass. Your life is like a a vapor. So the most important question is, what's coming after this life? My life is short. It's temporary. And how can I inherit eternal life? I'm going to die physically, but do I have to die eternally? That's the question. In Job 14, 14, Job asked the question, he says, if a man dies, will he live again? That's the most important question. I know that this life has to come to an end, but does it have to come to an end eternally? Job goes on to say, all the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. There's got to be more than this. We know this can't be the end. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 says that God has planted eternity in the hearts of every man. In Ecclesiastes 3, 11, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Men know that we're not meant to die. Like, this should not be the end. You know, sometimes you go to a funeral and people say, oh, they look natural. There's nothing more unnatural than a funeral, right? It's like, this This is not how they're supposed to be. Like, the, the life is taken away. The soul is gone. So this lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus the most important question that could ever be asked. How, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And eternal life is not just a promise of the New Testament, it's also a promise of the Old Testament. 
And this lawyer who would have been very steeped in the Old Testament law would have known that there are promises, there's hints of eternal life even in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. There's something after that. In uh, 2 Kings 2.11, Elijah went up in a whirlwind and where did he go? He went up to heaven. In uh, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel speaks about those who sleep in the dust of the ground who will awake to everlasting life. So, so there are these promises of everlasting life, and this lawyer wants to know, how do I get in on that? How do I get in on this eternal life? He comes to Jesus with this concern. I know that there's eternal life that's spoken of in the Old Testament, and I have this nagging feeling that I'm not in on that. Lord, can you tell me, how do I inherit eternal life? And it says that the lawyer put him to the test, so we don't know uh, just how sincere he was in the testing of Jesus, but it was still a sincere concern. This is something that the lawyers got together to talk about all the time. How do we know that we have eternal life? So there was something that nagged him about eternal life. And it's like, hey, maybe this is something that stumps these other scribes and lawyers. Uh, Maybe Jesus has an answer. Maybe we can stump him too. But he's asking Jesus this question that was a sincere question. How do I inherit eternal life and avoid disgrace and everlasting contempt? And what's shocking about this encounter is that we're talking about somebody who's at the top of the religious food chain. You know, the the lawyers, the scribes would have been known as the experts in the law. And uh, when we think about a lawyer, you know, we think about somebody who's an expert in criminal law or judicial law. You know, the the lawyers in the the New Testament would have been experts in the Old Testament law. You know, these would be be men that that read the law backwards and forwards. You know, they would have counted up the letters in in every book to make sure that it was the right amount. You know, they looked for scribal errors. They were... Uh, the people that the Sanhedrin, uh, which was a, a, a you know, kind of governing body for the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin would look to the scribes to check themselves because they're the experts. You know, they, they would go to the scribes to, to find out answers to thorny questions. But as much as this lawyer knew, he still didn't know about eternal life. And he still comes to Jesus. And maybe that describes somebody in here. You know, you, you know the Bible well. You know, you maybe live a respectable life. People come to you with questions. But something on the inside still says, I'm not sure if I have this gift of eternal life. Now, maybe that's that's you. So this lawyer comes to Jesus with this question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And he's recognizing Jesus as somebody who's worthy of being tested. Uh, Jesus had already spent roughly three years teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's encountered scribes, Pharisees numerous times, astonishing them with his wisdom. And one of the subjects that Jesus spoke about often was eternal life. So the scribe wants to hear, Jesus, what, what do you say about it? I, I, I know that you talk about it, you know, but what do you say about this question? You know, there's another occasion when Nicodemus, another leader of the Jews, came to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one else can do these signs that you do unless Jesus, unless uh, God is with him. And uh, Jesus says, you're not really here to talk about that. Let me, let me answer the question that you haven't asked yet. You're really here to know about eternal life, aren't you? You really want to know about how to be born again. That's what you really want to know about. So Jesus says to him in John 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what you're really here to talk about. You're really here to talk about the kingdom of God. You just don't want to say it up front. But that's the question that a lot of them had. How how do I get into this kingdom of God? How do I have eternal life? And if you're looking for an outline for today's message, it's two questions 
an answer, and a command, okay? Two questions, an answer, and a command, and that's the pattern that's repeated two times, okay? So first of all, we have the question, most important question. Lawyer stood up, put him to the test. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? How do I possess it? How do I know that it's mine when I die? And it's followed up by another question. In verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And this is so typical of Jesus. Jesus would answer a question with a question. And uh, it's, it's really a, a great uh, technique to use in, uh, even in personal evangelism, you know, to get people to, to think, you know, like uh, when people come to you and, you know, they, they offer, you know, their you know, view of life or whatever, and you ask them a question. You know, oh, that's, that's interesting. Let me ask you a question about that. Just to, to see if, you know, they're, they're able to reason consistently because eventually they start to get caught. You know, like when somebody says, there are no absolutes. I'm absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. You come back to them and say, are you sure about that? <laughs> are you absolutely sure about that one? Because it's inconsistent. You know, even your statement is inconsistent with itself. Or like when uh, you share the gospel with somebody and they say, you know, you shouldn't judge me. I'm telling you, you are wrong to judge me. You are wrong to judge me. But isn't that a judgment? Because you're telling me that I'm wrong to judge you. It's inconsistent. You know, so you ask enough questions, people start to see that I'm getting trapped here. And this is what Jesus did often. He would answer a question with a question and draw them in. So Jesus gives this lawyer an opportunity to answer his own question. You know, what, what, how does the law read to you? You know the law. How does the law read to you? And this answer that's given by this lawyer is actually an impressive answer. Verse 27, it says, He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. According to the Pharisees, uh, the law of God contains 613 separate laws. They counted them all up. They broke that down into 248 positive commands, 365 negative commands, you know, one for every day of the year. There was a well-known rabbinic tradition about heavy and light laws, so they, they divided them up into, like, you know, what's more foundational to other laws. And out of all the laws, out of all these 613 commands, the two most foundational commandments were love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You're right about that. That's how Jesus answered the question back in Matthew chapter 22. Because love for God and love for neighbor are foundational to everything else. Because if you love God, you won't make yourself an idol. If you love God, you won't take his name in vain. If you love God, you'll set aside time to honor him, obey him. And if you love your neighbor, you won't murder your neighbor. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You won't covet what belongs to him. If you really love God, you really love your neighbor, you'll obey all the other commands. So love for God and love for neighbor are foundational to every other command. So Jesus says, you know what? You've answered that right. You've answered it right. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law in Romans 13, verse 10. So the scribe arrives at the right answer regarding the summary of the law. Jesus affirms the answer. He says, you've answered correctly. So two questions, the command, do this and you'll live. Two questions and answer and a command. Do this and you'll live. And then he just leaves them. This is the most impenetrable command. Because none of us does this. And he just leaves them like that. Do this and you'll live. You might find 
that in all caps, do this and you will live. Uh, if you're looking at your Bible there, verse 28. It's marked off because that's a quotation from Leviticus 18 and 5. You know, do this and you'll live. You shall keep my statutes, my judgments, which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And I call this the impenetrable command because you can't get beyond it. You can't get under it, over it, through it. It's impenetrable. It stands right there in between you and eternal life. Do this and you'll live. And Jesus is telling this lawyer, if you want to enter the kingdom, obey that perfectly and you'll find life. And here the lawyer starts to squirm a little bit because he knows that he doesn't do it. So he's looking for a way out. Lawyer's looking for a way to, maybe I can accomplish this on my own if I just get some more direction. And uh, the way I think about that, it's just like, you know, somebody you know, showed up to the front door over here. They got a GPS and a backpack. And uh, they say, hey, I'm just wondering if you can give me some directions. I'm, uh, I'm hiking to, uh, uh, I've never been to Hawaii, and I'm hiking to Honolulu. And uh, according to my GPS, it says that if I, you know, travel 4,843 miles to the west, I can get there, you know, hike from here to Honolulu. And uh, you say, you know what, that's, your GPS is right. <laughs> you know, it's 4,843 miles, but, uh, you know, once you get to the coast of uh, California, you might want to grab a wetsuit uh, because you're not going to be able to hike it that way. The GPS is correct. You know, if you can walk that far, you'll get there, but you're not going to get there like that. And that's basically what Jesus is telling this guy. Yeah, the law is correct. Do this and you'll live. But you can't get there that way. There, there's no way that you can perfectly obey the law of God. So the law of God is holy. The commandment is holy. The GPS coordinates are right. But the problem is not the law. The problem is you. Romans 7.14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. It's mission impossible. I don't have the ability to do what the law says. It's like telling somebody to swim across the Pacific or jump to the moon. You can't do it. It's an impossible standard. And all you have to do is break the law of God one time and you're done. James 2.10, whoever keeps the law, the whole law, it stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So we sit under a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. Galatians 3.10 says. So it's an impenetrable command. I can't do this. But instead of this lawyer turning to Jesus and saying, well, Lord, have mercy. Is there, is there another way? <laughs> Can you give me another solution? You know, Lord, have mercy. I'm a sinner. There's, there's no way that I could achieve this righteousness on my own. What does he say? Well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> Out of all the questions you could ask, this is the question that he asked. Well, well, if you can just point me in the right direction, it's like the guy, you know, uh, that asked for directions to, to Honolulu, and he says, well, where can I get that wetsuit when I get to California? Did you not hear what I'm telling you? You're, you're not going to get there like that. But this is the guy that's asking for the, the wetsuit. Verse 29, wishing to justify himself. He says, and who is my neighbor? Totally jumped over the command to love the Lord, your guy with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. He says, well, maybe if I can figure out who my neighbor is, I can do that. So he's asking Jesus this misguided question. All I really need to know is who my neighbors are, and I think I've got a pretty good shot at obeying the law. So again, we get two questions and answer. 
and a command. But uh, before Jesus gets to his question, he tells the illustration. And uh, again, like I said, it's the best known, well-loved illustration in the scriptures. But often people take the, the, the illustration out of the context. The context is how do I inherit eternal life? So, so here Jesus is giving this story to convince this lawyer that you can't get there like this. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is used for. I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was in Louisiana. We were helping some uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, relief uh, victims. And um, we actually uh, were part of a, a ministry. And uh, there were some Roman Catholics that were also, you know, partnering with this ministry that we were um, giving some time to and, you know, helping to, you know, put together some packages for people that were moving into new homes. And uh, I remember talking to this one Roman Catholic, and I said, you know, hey, uh, how, how are you going to inherit eternal life? You know, asking him the question, all right? How, how are you going to inherit eternal life? He says, well, it's, it's kind of like by doing what I'm doing right now. You know, I'm helping out people. I'm giving to the poor, you know. And I, I think that if I can do this, that this is, this is how I can find eternal life. And uh, I actually used the same story to prove to him that you can't get there like that. You need another solution. You know, that's why we need Jesus Christ. So let's quickly take a look at the story. Verse 30 begins with the person in need. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him, went away leaving him half dead. Uh, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was a common trip, but it was a dangerous trip. Uh, Jerusalem was the center of uh, worship. Uh, males were required to go to Jerusalem uh, three times a year. Um, so it wasn't hard to imagine a a Jewish traveler coming down this road, but it was a dangerous trip, about a 14, uh, actually 17 mile hike through a desolate area. Uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem's 3,000 feet above sea level and uh, Jericho where he's heading is 1,000 feet below sea level, so it's you know all downhill through some treacherous terrain. I actually uh, went to visit Israel a number of years ago and was on the same path you know, from that stretch of, you know, you know, road between uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, and it is desolate. I mean, there's nothing out there. And, uh, you know, the, there's like these kind of steep, you know, uh, precipices where, you know, if you take the wrong turn, you're just like straight down. And I remember our bus driver, he took great delight in like, you know, going really quick and turning the, you know, the turns and everything. You know, everybody's screaming. It's like, you know, are we going to die? You know, did I fill out my will? But, uh, but this place is desolate. And if we got in an accident out there, if we fell over, I don't know when anybody would be coming down that road to, to come and get us. But it's a, it's a dangerous place. So here he is. He's on this dangerous stretch of road, 17-mile hike. And he fell among thieves. Uh, the word that's used for robbers here is the Greek word lestes. It's a word for an armed robber, somebody who didn't mind you know, taking what he wanted by force. That's who he fell among. And here he comes upon somebody who can help. Somebody comes upon him who can help, verse 31, and by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And it wouldn't have been uncommon for a priest to be on this road. You know, they would have, a lot of priests actually lived in, in Jericho, so it wouldn't have been hard to imagine a priest coming down this road. And the sacrificial system was the heart of worship, so they had to make this trip often in order to do their work. They represented the people before God. They were supposed to be the mediators between God and men, you know, representing the men before God, you know, taking their sacrifices to the Lord. So here you have a representative of the people coming across somebody that he represented. And when he saw him, verse 31 says, he passed by 
on the other side. Purposefully avoided him. And there's all kinds of reasons that people come up with, like, you know, why did he do this? You know, maybe he thought he was going to defile himself. You know, maybe he was worried that the attackers are still there. You know, maybe he considered this person to be judged by God and he's deserving his judgment. But whatever the reason is, we can all agree that what he did was not loving. Because if you were on the side of the road, you'd want somebody to help you. You know, that's the loving thing to do. You know, but he has all these reasons. People can come up with all the reasons why, you know, maybe he left him. And if, if your pastor sees you like mugged on the side of the road and he doesn't stop by to help, you need to find somebody else, right? <laughs> but that's who this is. This is somebody who's representing the people before the Lord. And it's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting involved. I'm going to go by on the other side of the road. You know, this guy has just gotten mugged and here comes the representative before the Lord and he does nothing to help. But here comes somebody else who can help. Here comes a Levite. Verse 32 speaks about a, a Levite. It says, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The, the Levites were the, actually the, the appointed to be ministers alongside of the priests. And uh, they took care of the temple. They took care of the furniture, the implements used for worship. And actually, according to Numbers 18 and 21, the uh, the Levites were actually supported by what the people gave. So this guy's salary was paid for by this person. So here you have this guy on the side of the road who helped support the Levite's salary, and he sees him and he passes by on the other side of the road. So if you have a deacon here, he sees you mugged and he goes by on the other side of the road. Find another deacon, right? It's not loving, because that's not what I would want done to me. And then along the same road comes a Samaritan. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him. And stop right there. If, if you were listening to this for the first time, right? If the priest didn't stop to help, and then the Levite didn't stop to help, and here comes the Samaritan, what's the Samaritan going to do? I mean, this guy's coming to do him in. Because the Samaritans were known as the enemies of the Jewish people. So if you're a Jewish person, you're listening to this for the first time, you're thinking, well, here comes the Samaritan to finish him off. You know, this guy's not getting a break. You know, the priest doesn't help, the Levite doesn't help, and here comes the enemy to finish the job. The Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people, uh, descended from a mixture of Jewish people who left uh, behind, were left behind after the northern tribes were conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. There are the Jews who weren't deported. They mixed in with the the, the other nations, so they were you know, kind of like this kind of mixed people. After the Babylonian exile in the south, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, uh, they came to rebuild the temple, and guess who opposed the work? The Samaritans did. You, know, you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, if you know the name Sanballat. He opposed the work of God, and who was he? He was a Samaritan. Samaritans developed their own system of worship, you know, so they weren't even accepted by the Jewish people. They had their own place for worship. Mount Gerizim, you remember that in uh, 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 John 4. Uh, so they had their own place for worship. And in 6 AD, okay, so uh, AD 6, uh, 6 AD, a group of Samaritans actually desecrated the temple in Jerusalem and spread human bones in the temple. So that's 6 AD, which would have been just a couple years after Jesus was born. So this is fresh on people's minds. The Samaritans 
Those are the guys that came in and desecrated our temple. These are the guys that, that oppose the work of God. There is no way that a Samaritan's going to stop and help anybody. These are our enemies. I'll, 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 I'll make a, a tour around Samaria because I don't even want their dust to touch my shoes. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. So the Jewish people really wanted to put you down. If they really wanted to put you down, they'd call you a Samaritan. In John 8, 48, the Jews spoke to Jesus and he, they said, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's like the worst put down. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. Samaritans would have evoked all kinds of feelings of hostility. And here comes the Samaritan. And like I said, if you're the first time hearing this, here he comes to put him out of his misery. But a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him, verse 33 says, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. It's the Greek word splank nidzomai. Uh, it's the, the word for the guts. You know, like your, your stomach kind of turns when you really feel compassion for somebody. And since he reached out to him in compassion, it was like gut-wrenching. He could feel the pain. It came up upon him, verse 34 says, bandaged up his wounds. Where is he going to get bandages from out here in a desolate place? You know, it doesn't have a CVS to go to. He would have ripped the strips of his own clothes to bandage this guy up with. Ripping his own clothes to take care of him. He poured oil on him, which would have been to kind of soothe the, 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 the wounds. You know, the, the wine would have been used as a disinfectant. You know, so the, the wine and the oil that he would have been using for his own, you know, nourishment, you know, like cooking a meal or drinking on the way. Now he's going to pour out what he has, his own resources, to help this guy. I'm going to pour out my oil, my wine, rip my own clothes, banish him up, put him on his own beast. So if the Samaritan was riding before, he's walking now. I'm going to put you on my beast and bring him to the inn. And the inn took care of him, right? No, that's not, that's not what the text says. It says that uh, he brought him to the inn, verse 34, and took care of him. He took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, so he stayed the whole night to care for this guy. Personally attended to him throughout the night. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Basically, I'm going to leave you with my credit card and the PIN number on the back and just charge it to my account. Whatever he needs, you can have it. And again, don't forget that this is an enemy. This would be like, you know, somebody from Hamas taking care of an Israeli soldier. Just saying like, hey, whatever he needs, I'll, I'll take care of him. They, they would have been hostile towards one another. But now he says, I'm going to give him everything that he needs. And then this is just the background for the question that Jesus is going to ask. So remember I said two questions and answer and a command. Here's the question that Jesus asked. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And this brings us right back to this impossible standard. Basically the same question that Jesus asked in the beginning. You know, how does the law read to you? If you were to understand the law, how does that read to you? Do you understand this now? Now do you understand how deep the ocean is? Do you understand you can't get there like this? Who, who, who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So the question isn't who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? That's the question, right? That's the standard. And none of us meet the standard. He answers the question correctly, though. He said, the one who showed mercy to him. 
the one who showed mercy. And he's right. It's an impressive answer. But the question that I would have is, is anybody good enough to be a good Samaritan after hearing this? Because we don't love God perfectly, and we don't love our neighbor perfectly, and if we stumble in one point of the law, we've, we're guilty of all of it. And Jesus says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. He's leaving them hanging. That's what he's doing. He's left them hanging. Because I can't go and do the same. I, I don't do this. And you may walk away from this and say, like, how is this helpful? <laughs> you're, you're not giving him a solution. But until he sees the problem, he's not ready for the solution. You get that? There's this little book uh, by Walter Chantry. Uh, it's called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic. And he says something similar about the encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. Remember that story as well? And he says, aren't you a little disappointed to see Jesus handling this tender soul so roughly? How could our Lord use such obviously poor tactics with a sinner? And he allowed the fish to get away. Didn't he know how to lead a soul to himself? So here you have this guy. He wants to know about eternal life. And then you direct him to the law. And then you tell him a story about an impossible standard, and then at the end of that, you say, well, do this and you'll live. That's like telling the guy who wants to hike to Hawaii where he can buy the wetsuit. You can't inherit eternal life based on obedience. Romans 3, 19-20 says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable before God. Jesus was using the law to shut this guy's mouth. You're accountable to the law. Every mouth should be shut because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What was this lawyer looking to do? If you look back in the text, he was looking to justify himself. I'm still trying to present myself as innocent in the sight of a holy God. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for who's my neighbor. Maybe somehow I can do this. But the law doesn't let us know that we can keep it. The law lets us know how guilty we are because we can't keep it. It's the law that condemns me and puts me to death. Romans 7 verse 9 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Chantry in his book, he goes on to say that the normal evangelistic practice is swiftly to run to the cross, but the cross means nothing apart from the law. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the just demands of the law against sinners. But if sinners are unaware of the law's requirements for themselves, they will see no personal significance in Christ's broken body and shed blood. Without knowledge of condemnation of God's holy law, the cross will draw sympathy but not saving faith from sinners. I don't know if you guys remember like the, the Passion of the Christ. There's a lot of people that watched the movie and they were just, oh, I can't believe they, I can't believe they beat him like that. I can't believe he suffered so much. So there was a lot of sympathy. A lot of sympathy for Jesus. It's like you walk away and you just... I feel bad for Jesus. But because there's not the law that says that that's what you deserve, and I'm guilty, I'm condemned, there's not a turning to the cross, turning to the salvation that's offered because of the cross. There's just a lot of sympathy. I just feel bad. I feel bad for Jesus. But you need to understand that, no, that's me. That's what I deserve. What sense was there in offering the man salvation when he only had a vague awareness of his danger? 
Though he had his doubts, he would inherit eternal life. He certainly didn't think of himself as a lawbreaker, but sin is a transgression of the law. This is, again, Chantry going on to say this. And Jesus came not to call the righteous, but the what? Sinners to repentance. This man had to understand that he was a sinner before he could understand the Savior. And that's what Jesus used this parable to do, to point out to this man that you are a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness. And when Jesus spoke with this man, he says, how does the law read to you? And he left him hanging. But when he spoke to Nicodemus, remember we referred to that back in John 3, Nicodemus didn't justify himself. Nicodemus humbled himself. When Jesus says you have to be born again, what did Nicodemus say? How, how can I? How, can I go back into my mother's womb and start all over again? Like there's, It's impossible for me. Nicodemus admits that I can't do this. So how does Jesus respond to him? You know, we, we find you know, one of the, the clearest passages that speak of the gospel in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the way to eternal life. You have to believe in the son because you're not going to get there on your own. Nicodemus admitted that he couldn't do it. This lawyer was still trying to justify himself as if he could. And that's the difference between the two encounters. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not primarily about loving your neighbor. You know, it's not a state farm commercial like a good neighbor. You should be there. It's meant to show us that you can't get to heaven this way. You can't get to heaven by being a good neighbor. Uh, the only way to get to heaven is by trusting in Jesus Christ and humbling yourself because you understand that you're worthy of his just condemnation against you. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this uh, text. Uh, we pray that you would use it in our lives. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you... Uh, would convict us, Lord, if we're here and we have not yet trusted in Christ, uh, that we would understand that there's only one way to be saved, and it's not by our good deeds, it's by uh, what Christ has already done uh, on our behalf on the cross. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would be uh, challenged, Lord, by uh, this call to love, Lord. We, we should love, uh, Lord. We, we should sacrifice ourselves for others. Uh, but Father, um, we understand that that's not the way that uh, we'll ever uh, satisfy your just requirements. It's only by trusting in Christ. Uh, so, Father, I pray that we would uh, see this scripture, Lord, again within its context and uh, that you, Lord, would be uh, glorified um, uh, through it. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.